If you want to expand your lifespan in a voluntary way that can be highly enjoyable, expand it backwards. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. What do you have for us today? Well, I've been reading lately a book by George Eliot, uh, Daniel Deronda, her last novel. And actually, it's part of a custom I have of reading out loud to my wife at bedtime doing it for years. I love to read out loud, and I've, I've done it all my life, essentially. Uh, can we say, j- just uh, for to refresh people's memory, uh, George Eliot, pen name for Mary Evans? Is right, right? Mary Ann Evans. Mary Ann Evans. And uh, she, she wrote, she was a Victorian novelist. Right. And uh, George Eliot's mostly known for her novels, uh, Mill on the Floss and Adam Bede and Middlemarch. Um, her lesser-known novel, uh, Daniel Deronda, was made into a masterpiece theater uh, several years ago, but is much less widely known. But I'm finding it absolutely fascinating. It, it deals partly with uh, a young man who finds himself drawn into the world of Judaism in an upper-class society that does not respect Jews, to put it politely. And um, it's it's a very complex, rich kind of uh, analysis, and she uses very complex, rich sentences to convey it. The passage that I wanted to give as a sample is from chapter six, where uh, she has just had her main character, who's a rather vain young woman named Gwendolyn, who is hoping that uh, she can be admired not only for her beauty, but for her musical talents and this very forthright uh, music musician, music instructor, has told her that she really doesn't perform all that well. And she's very jealous of a friend of hers, Miss Arrowpoint, who is a better musician. And in fact, is going to wind up getting married to this very professor. So, uh, spoiler alert, uh, too late, right? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, she writes sometimes very long, complicated sentences of a kind that would be deplored in modern writing. Modern writing tends towards short, emphatic statements. Uh, you're supposed to keep it simple, keep it direct, let people know what you're knowing and doing. Uh, but she often leads you through a, a delicate tracery uh, to get to where she's going. This uh, particular sentence has in it, I counted, 11 commas, two semicolons, and a dash. Okay, I'm 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 going to get lost as you read it. I promise you, but I, I I'm dying to hear this sentence. Okay, she would not have chosen to confess how unfortunate she thought herself in not having had Miss Arrowpoint's musical advantages, so as to be able to question Herr Klesmer's taste with a confidence of thorough knowledge, still less to admit even to herself that Miss Arrowpoint, each time they met, raised an unwanted feeling of jealousy in her not in the least because she was an heiress, but because it was really provoking that a girl whose appearance you could not characterize except by saying that her figure was slight and of middle stature, her features small, her eyes tolerable, and her complexion sallow, had nevertheless a certain mental superiority which could not be explained away. 
an exasperating thoroughness in her musical accomplishment, a fastidious discrimination in her general tastes, which made it impossible to force her admiration and kept you in awe of her standard. Well, Paul, I can I can I say something right off the bat? Sure. I did not get as lost as I feared I would when you <laughs> when you when you announced to me the the makeup of this sentence. I I, I I'm interested in uh, I'm interested in talking a little bit about why I think that might be. But why don't you say what you have to say about all of this these commas and semicolons and dashes heaped one upon the other to get to the end of that sentence? Uh, for one thing, this is an obviously an example of somebody not only thinking ahead of where they need to wind up, but going back over their prose again and again to construct a sentence very carefully to do what she wants. Probably some of that punctuation are not able to last. But I'd also say that I wouldn't blame you if you did get lost, if you're reading this to yourself. Let me read this in a more flat tone without the emphasis, just a bit of it, to give you an example. She would not have chosen to confess how unfortunate she thought herself in not having had Miss Arrowpoint's musical advantages so as to be able to question Sir Klesmer's taste with the confidence and thorough knowledge still less to admit even to herself that Miss Arrowpoint each time they met raised an unwanted feeling of jealousy in her not in the least because she was an heiress. Okay. We do play readings at our home uh, very frequently. And there are some people who, even at a mature age, uh, have never really mastered reading in a fluent manner aloud. And they're puzzling over each word. They don't know what's coming next. And so they can't use inflection or tone or rhythm to try to parse out what the various parts of the sentence are doing. The skill that you need for doing this kind of reading is to be able to read ahead. So my eyes are going about uh, anywhere from five to ten words ahead, looking where the next phrase is going to be. And I'm thinking, okay, now I need to make this sound as if it's going to be an interruption. And uh, there will be a parenthetical expression. Now I'm going to be returning to this later. And you make a different sound with your voice when you're doing that. So uh, that's one reason for this kind of, of writing it's fun for me. It's like performing music. I'm not, I can't read music, <laughs> but I think I can read the music in prose. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I'm trying to render when I'm reading aloud. Well, a lot of people have said that punctuation is, uh, li they liken punctuation to musical notation. And you can see that. And I, as you're describing reading this aloud to me, I can see that happening in me too. If you are careful to spot where those where those punctuation marks are coming, as you read along, you can start to uh, let your voice, you can raise your voice and start to let it decline at an appropriate moment <laughs> so that you, when you hit that comma, when you hit that little pause, you're going to be ready for it. Yeah, well, obviously I'm not recommending that everybody start writing sentences like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that I wish teachers and editors would not automatically assume that a complex sentence with many clauses is a bad sentence. I tend to like to write such sentences sometimes, not as a standard feature. I'm, I'm conscious of trying to get, be clear and to the point. But sometimes what I want to say works better in a complicated sentence. 
And it's fine if somebody says, I can't make sense of this. I don't understand it. But I'm, I get irritated if an editor tells me, uh, this just has too many clauses. We need to keep the sentences shorter. Mm-hmm. I, I think a variety of sentences is uh, more interesting to a reader. Mm-hmm. If you have nothing but long sentences, it's going to get very wearying. Mm-hmm. But I get bored by just very short declarative sentences, just one after another without any variety. Well, and that's the that's a more modern style is to go with with shorter sentences. Um, this has been uh, propagated in part by some of the traditional uh, writer writing manuals that that uh, that people have followed. Um, uh, Strunk and White famously have their their declaration: omit needless words. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Elmore Leonard tells you don't use adverbs. Uh, you, you look all over the place and uh, writers always tell you to cut stuff out, cut it out, make it short, make it short. And it is a bit of a delusion because uh, an accomplished writer can write a long sentence. And let's just say right off the bat that George Eliot's an accomplished writer who Absolutely. is capable of writing a long sentence and making it all parse, making it all make sense. And it is not her fault if you can't follow along. It really is the reader's fault. But I'm gonna I'm going to say that this is uh, this there are things things that she's done with here that help you help the reader break it up into chunks. And she no I think she must be aware that she's writing a very long sentence that uh, has every opportunity of you know swirling down the drain and and uh, just getting completely lost. But she has helped helped you as a reader by composing it the way she composed it, breaking it up the way she has, dividing it into little digestible parts, so that when you get to the end of it, you don't. It, it, she, there's an illusion that you've done something very very simple here, but in fact, it's really complicated. It's a really long sentence with lots of different parts. One of the things that beginning writers often fall into is uh, imitating the style of writers that they admire reading. And those are two different skills. Uh, teachers will often tell you, find your own voice, uh, creative writing teachers. Well, the people often don't have a natural voice. You have to play around. You have to experiment with things. And I think it's a mistake on the one hand to just slavishly imitate another writer and on the other hand, to be so determined to uh, say exactly the way you speak that it becomes unintelligible. If you've ever had a job of transcribing interviews, and that's something I've done a bit of doing uh, some, some interviews with uh, older people here where I live about their reminiscences, and realize how they interrupt themselves and repeat themselves and uh, lose the thread in the middle of the sentence, you know that it doesn't work in writing to just put down on, on paper what people are saying. Uh, no, no, it definitely doesn't. And and uh, but the, there is a, when you do when you do catalog uh, people's reminiscences that way, uh, and per, you're doing oral history, and um, right, exactly. oral history is hard to. It's hard to slog through as a reader because we're used to reading edited. We're used to reading 
words that were written down and and thought over and and gone back over again and again and presented to you in a play, in a way that is easy for, easier for you to follow uh, we can be we can be much more patient in a way with uh, uh, verbal communication and people going back and repeating what they said you know two seconds ago and and uh, ums and ahs and pauses and and so on in a lot of ways we are more we can be more patient because we know that we're engaged in an interactive vital activity but if you try to write that all down verbatim it's not going to be very good That's well and, and something that relates to what i was just saying about elegant is uh, very much the case here too and when we're speaking our inflections uh, whether you're tone goes up or down, whether you emphasize a particular word, whether you pause, is going to add a lot to the meeting and maybe even your eyebrows moving around or gestures you're making with your hand or where you're looking when you're talking. All of those things get lost when you write down spoken prose. And that makes it uh, painful to read. I'm thinking of a particular oral history that I took a few years ago just with a man about a month before he died actually and captured some wonderful stories. But when it came time to do the story in the newsletter that I was working with, um, I did, did chose to use very few quotations from him and instead to paraphrase what he was saying and just say, well, he told us the story of how his mother, when he was a baby, used to push her uh, baby carriage over the gravel roads uh, five miles down to visit her friends in the nearby town. Well. You know, he, he didn't say it exactly that way, but that's that's what he meant. Mm -hmm. Sure, and and that's the prerogative of of the uh, historian, I guess, to to go back through and I, there's there is a place where um, interviews are cataloged, and um, but they tend to remain in in uh, in files or in academic <laughs> libraries and, well, and not fact, really see the light of day unless you're you are going back to do to do source. Research. If you're a historian doing uh, research with source material, exactly. In fact, so what I did was to make an exact transcription of the interview and turn that into the local historical society, and they have it on file, mm -hmm. as well as my story. And on that note, uh, speaking of uh, the difference between verbal and written communication, I just want to say we're looking back at a we're we're talking about a writer who lived. Uh, well over 100 years ago, uh, more like 150 or 150 plus years ago. And we're reading her prose and we're in this, we're captured in the spell of somebody who has mastered the language, uh, mastered writing. Uh, you said this is her final novel. So she's, she's, she has a fair amount of history under her belt and, and how to, how this is done. And we're, under an, we tend to get under an illusion of thinking that when we read Victorian prose, when we read Victorian novels, we're reading the what we're reading what is left as an example of of just how articulate and how well read and how uh, immersed in the classics and etc. People were back then. Uh, we don't have the advantage, uh, much as we'd like to, of sitting down and talking with uh, Marianne Evans to see how she really did talk when 
her guard was down completely and she just needed to somebody to go fetch her some sugar for her tea or something. I'm, we do have no idea how that language was put and uh, how probably are more articulate than I'm being right now, but, but how generally inarticulate she might be able to sound outside of the composition of her novels. And I think that's something to keep in mind. Uh, a lot of, uh, there is a lot of nitpickers like to um, go back over time, look back through writing in, in the past and declare that to be an example, exemplary of how people talked in the day. And I don't buy that. I don't think that's ever been true. It's not true today. No, not, not at all. The other um, related topic that sort of pulls in the other direction is that when you're watching a movie or a TV show and there's a scene of, of important dialogue going back and forth, very frequently, for the drama's sake, it becomes very unrealistic. Now, when you're watching it, you may think, wow, these, yeah, maybe you won't think, but later you might think, these actors really did a great job in embodying these characters. It seemed like real life. So somebody comes in through the door and says, um, I just saw your husband down the street with another woman. And the woman's saying, oh my God, that bastard. And something happens at that point. And what doesn't happen is a prolonged exchange. What? What do you mean? Who? You mean really my husband? Yeah, your husband. How'd you know it was him? Um, well, it looked like him from the back anyway. I think he just got a haircut yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay, so tell me, who was this? Yeah, well, I think it was that, what? You're not explaining this very clearly. I, I, he would never do this to me. That's the kind of conversation people would have in real life. But never in a movie, or very rarely. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Even if they're using improvised dialogue, because it would be tiresome. Real-life conversation is repetitive, and especially if you're exploring some big emotional moment, there's a lot of going back over and over things, trying to find out detail, and most importantly, explaining things that aren't clear. A lot of dramatic scenes depend on failing to explain what it was you just saw and filling in the details. The other person misunderstands you, and then the drama springs from that. I think that's cheating. And I always feel uh, when I'm viewing a scene, I think, you know, if they just spoke a little bit longer to clear this up, the whole rest of this drama would never have happened. It, it just um, annoys me. And it's beginning to annoy me when I see a contemporary drama and I say, why didn't they just get in touch on their cell phones? <laughs> they wouldn't have missed each other. <laughs> All this wouldn't have happened. I mean, finally, after quite a long while of people having cell phones. I noticed that filmmakers are beginning to get that and not usually put, they, they'll, they'll find some reason, you know, the battery ran out mm -hmm. that will make it impossible to communicate. But if you look back at past dialogue in dramas, in movies in, and so on, uh, it's amazing how much of it just depends on people not speaking all the words that they need to to make themselves clear. Uh, absolutely true, uh, and uh, it, uh, that's a whole that's a whole realm of artifice. And we're really talking about artifice. We're talking about 
structured stories, structured sentences, structured prose uh, that does run counter to uh, real life. The trick for the the writer and the trick for the screenwriter and the and the director and the actors is to make it all seem as if it's the most natural thing in the world, and to come up with reasons why this is a a plausible story for for Grady. And there are uh, there are uh, on the other hand plenty of times that I'm very conscious of the um, uh, the the pretense or the um, artificiality, the artificiality, and yet I still willingly give myself over to it if there's some other compelling reason, uh, if the acting is particularly good, if if the story other other than this huge gaping hole in it has enough going on, you can get away with some of that, but right. uh, in general. Uh, the trick is to is to not make it too too painfully obvious to your viewers or listeners that uh, this is all uh, put on. Right. Is there is there more we want to say about uh, what th- this sentence does? I mean, do you want to get into particulars about how that that these commas and these semicolons fit together? And what what Elliot is often doing in sentences like this is trying to convey a complex group of ideas together. She doesn't want to line them up. For instance, she just doesn't want to say, Gwendolyn was offended. Gwendolyn was jealous of Miss Harrowpoint. Miss mm-hmm. Harrowpoint wasn't particularly good looking, <laughs> but everybody admired her because she was so smart mm-hmm. and talented. What she wants to do is link those things together. And in a way, it may not be like speech, but it is a little bit like thought in the sense that if you could get into Gwendolyn's brain, she would be thinking and feeling these things all at the same time or in very rapid alternation. So she's thinking, Ugh, that hurt when he said my singing wasn't that good. But, um, geez, I wish I had the talent Miss Arrowpoint has, but uh, she is so annoying. And so she's got these mixed feelings about Miss Arrowpoint. She's got mixed feelings about Mr. Klezmer. She's got mixed feelings about music, which she really doesn't care about that much. It's people admiring her. It's what she lives for. That's the most important issue. And here are two different ways in which she's not admired. By Klezmer, because she's not that talented, and by the general public who have a chance to compare her performances with those of Miss Arrowpoint. And that's all mixed up together in her brain. And by putting it all in the same sentence and interrupting herself and so on, she's doing a little bit something distantly related to what James Joyce tried to do. Oh, absolutely. There is a stream of consciousness, uh, a little glimpse into where fiction is, where literature is, is going to go to about 50 years later in sentences like this. Now, the way that George Eliot puts her sentences together and the um, uh, versus James Joyce is very different because James Joyce is a modernist who is constantly making obscure references to uh, pieces of art or other other bits of cultural knowledge that you may or may not be privy to. Uh, this sentence is locked into the 
the direct story, the context of the direct story. So whereas the construction of the prose is similar in, in the way that it, it heaps one little observation in Gwendolyn's head upon the other and one of her little thoughts on the other so that you actually do get into her head and you uh, don't necessarily follow A to B to C kind of logic here. It's more of a general picture that's being presented of what's happening in her head. Uh, in that sense, it is very similar. And I just want to say, too, um, just a bit of helpfulness that you get here. Um, she's talking about Miss Arrowpoint's appearance. Um, and she says, uh, it, really, it was really provoking that a girl whose appearance you could not characterize except by saying that her figure was slight and of middle stature, her features small, her eyes tolerable, her complexion sallow, had nevertheless a certain mental superiority which could not be explained away. <laughs> when, when she uses that repetition of the, the, the rhythm, so when she, when she gets to that point, her complexion sallow, her eyes tolerable, her features small, uh, that, that, that kind of repetition is the, that's what I'm talking about, a, a place for the reader to stop and relax in the middle of all of this long uh, sentence and get to a point where, oh, okay, now I know how to read this. Now I'm getting to a rhythm. Now I have some repeated phrases. And these little chunks all do add up in your head. And then she moves on with the rest of the sentence. Um, yeah, and you also get the experience of being in Gwendolyn's brain. And she's constantly comparing herself to everybody else. She wants to be the most beautiful woman in the room, the most desirable person. And so she's looking around at other women, even in her mind, she's making a list of why she's not as good looking as me. But she's coming to, to understand a little bit. Ah, looks aren't everything. People sometimes, <laughs> and, and Gwendolyn is, is a horrible person, at least in the first part of the novel. Um, and she doesn't realize that because she's been so lavished with praise for her beauty and people are so taken in by that that they don't always convey to her what it is that's it's really annoying about her. Mm -hmm. Now, the Joyce, one of the things that Joyce was trying to do, even in uh, um, his earlier writings, is to capture fleeting thoughts as they come through the brain. So the often there's a lack of punctuation and just uh, momentary glimpses of, of ideas clashing with each other and so on. I also admire his prose tremendously. I've actually read Ulysses out loud three times to three different people, and I've enjoyed it every time. But it's a different kind of challenge. It calls for an entirely different kind of writing. And it's important to understand that when you're doing poetry or fiction, the rules that usually would go in place in writing a fact-based article for the New Yorker are not entirely out the window, but they're not entirely relevant either. You can do all kinds of things. You can be E.E. E. Cummings using punctuation uh, as a decorative feature. And of course, uh, everybody's familiar now with using a semicolon as a wink on the web uh, and in emails, uh, winking... I, uh, Semicolons are probably far more common. I would guess there are a hundred to one over actual semicolons that are used to punctuate a sentence. And they're probably a um, hundred to one over actual winks, <laughs> at least. <laughs> absolutely. People don't wink at each other anymore. 
but but that's it's interesting that that's become such a cliche. Well, yeah, that's that's right. Well, let's. Uh, I, I I would like to say a couple of more things about Victorian prose, um, uh, Victorian uh, fiction, um, and uh, but I, I may save that for another time because it is such a rich part of our heritage as as uh, users of English. I think it's very important for us to go back and read older older works um, in order to not lose lose touch with them entirely it's hard enough to read go back f- a little farther than than george eliot and and read shakespeare these days um let's not start losing our our grasp on victorian novels as well as we continue to as the language continues to evolve now i sometimes would tell my students you know people usually want to live good long rich lives and like to see what the future will bring and you don't have entire control over that. And there certainly will come a time when you're not here anymore and you won't get to know about it. If you want to expand your lifespan in a voluntary way that can be highly enjoyable, expand it backwards. Uh, start learning more about not just history and the sense of battles and so on, but the art, the poetry, the music of past times. You can enlarge your life in a way that is really extraordinary, and that takes a set of skills. And part of that set of skills is being way, being able to make your way through a sentence that has eleven commas in it. <laughs> and it's easier to do than it ever has been before, because we have uh, all of the all of George Eliot's novels are freely available to you to read online on your e-reader. Um, uh, books are their books are printed books are available very inexpensively and at your library and if you'd like you can even participate in um, uh, l- uh, lis- listening to them in freely available readings by uh, volunteers who have posted them at LibriVox L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X and listen to some of these old novels and uh, many of the readers who participate in that project are excellent uh, you can find them for yourselves but it's never been easier to go back to the pa- through the through the history of, of literature and and the arts than it is now absolutely That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.